Chapter Five of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Francis Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, Cincinnati Forest Farm, Mr. Bullock. Though I do not quite sympathize with those who consider Cincinnati as one of the wonders of the earth, I certainly think it a city of extraordinary size and importance, when it is remembered that thirty years ago the aboriginal forest occupied the ground where it stands, and every month appears to extend its limits and its wealth. Some of the native political economists assert that this rapid conversion of a bear-break into a prosperous city is the result of free political institutions. Not being very deep in such matters, a more obvious cause suggested itself to me in the unceasing goad which necessity applies to industry in this country, and in the absence of all resources for the idle. During nearly two years that I resided in Cincinnati or its neighbourhood, I neither saw a beggar nor a man of sufficient fortune to permit his ceasing his efforts to increase it. Thus every bee in the hive is actively employed in the search of that honey of hybla, vulgarly called money. Neither art, science, learning, nor pleasure can seduce them from its pursuit. This unity of purpose, backed by the spirit of enterprise, and joined with an acuteness and total absence of probity, where interest is concerned, which might set canny Yorkshire at defiance, may well go far towards obtaining its purpose. The low rate of taxation, too, unquestionably permits a more rapid accumulation of individual wealth than with us. But till I had travelled through America, I had no idea how much of the money collected in taxes returns among the people, not only in the purchase of what their industry furnishes, but in the actual enjoyment of what is furnished. Were I an English legislator, instead of sending sedition to the tower, I would send her to make a tour of the United States. I had a little leaning towards sedition myself when I set out, but before I had half completed my tour I was quite cured. I have read much of the few and simple wants of rational man, and I used to give a sort of dreamy acquiescence to the reasoning that went to prove each added want an added woe. Those who reason in a comfortable London drawing-room know little about the matter. Were the aliments which sustain life all that we wanted, the faculties of the hog might suffice us. But if we analyse an hour of enjoyment, we shall find that it is made up of agreeable sensations occasioned by a thousand delicate impressions on almost as many nerves. Where these nerves are sluggish from never having been awakened, external objects are less important, for they are less perceived. But where the whole machine of the human frame is in full activity, where every sense brings home to consciousness its touch of pleasure or of pain, then every object that meets the senses is important as a vehicle of happiness or misery. But let no frame so tempered visit the United States. Or if they do, let it be with no longer pausing than will store the memory with images which by the force of contrast shall sweeten the future. Guarda e passa e poi rajam di lor. The simple manner of living in Western America was more distasteful to me from its levelling effects on the manners of the people than from the personal privations that it rendered necessary. 
and yet, till I was without them, I was in no degree aware of the many pleasurable sensations derived from the little elegancies and refinements enjoyed by the middle classes in Europe. There were many circumstances, too trifling even for my gossiping pages, which pressed themselves daily and hourly upon us, and which forced us to remember painfully that we were not at home. It requires an abler pen than mine to trace the connection which I am persuaded exists between these deficiencies and the minds and manners of the people. All animal wants are supplied profusely at Cincinnati, and at a very easy rate, but, alas, these go but a little way in the history of a day's enjoyment. The total and universal want of manners, both in males and females, is so remarkable that I was constantly endeavouring to account for it. It certainly does not proceed from want of intellect. I have listened to much dull and heavy conversation in America, but rarely to any that I could strictly call silly, if I except the everywhere privileged class of very young ladies. They appear to me to have clear heads and active intellects, are more ignorant on subjects that are only of conventional value than on such as are of intrinsic importance. But there is no charm, no grace in their conversation. I very seldom during my whole stay in the country heard a sentence elegantly turned and correctly pronounced from the lips of an American. There is always something either in the expression or the accent that jars the feelings and shocks the taste. I will not pretend to decide whether man is better or worse off for requiring refinement in the manners and customs of the society that surrounds him, and for being incapable of enjoyment without them. But in America that polish which removes the coarser and rougher parts of our nature is unknown and undreamed of. There is much substantial comfort, and some display in the larger cities. In many of the more obvious features they are as Paris or as London, being all large assemblies of active and intelligent human beings, but yet they are wonderfully unlike in nearly all their moral features. Now, God forbid that any reasonable American, of whom there are so many millions, should ever come to ask me what I mean, I should find it very difficult, nay, perhaps utterly impossible, to explain myself. But on the other hand, no European who has visited the Union will find the least difficulty in understanding me. I am in no way competent to judge of the political institutions of America, and if I should occasionally make an observation on their effects as they meet my superficial glance, they will be made in the spirit and with the feeling of a woman who is apt to tell what her first impressions may be, but unapt to reason back from effects to their causes. Such observations, if they be unworthy of much attention, are also obnoxious to little reproof. But there are points of national peculiarity of which women may judge as ably as men. All that constitutes the external of society may be fairly trusted to us. Captain Hall, when asked what appeared to him to constitute the greatest difference between England and America, replied, like a gallant sailor, the want of loyalty. With the same question put to me, I should answer, the want of refinement. Were Americans indeed disposed to assume the plain, unpretending deportment of the Switzer in the days of his picturesque simplicity, when, however, he never chewed tobacco, it would be in bad taste to censure him. But this is not the case. 
Jonathan will be a fine gentleman, but it must be in his own way. Is he not a free-born American? Jonathan, however, must remember that if he will challenge competition with the old world, the old world will now and then look out to see how he supports his pretensions. With their hours of business, whether judicial or mercantile, civil or military, I have nothing to do. I doubt not they are all spent wisely and profitably, but what are their hours of recreation? Those hours that with us are passed in the enjoyment of all that art can win from nature, when if the elaborate repast be more deeply relished than sages might approve, it is redeemed from sensuality by the presence of elegance and beauty. What is the American pendant to this? I will not draw any comparisons between a good dinner-party and the two countries. I have heard American gentlemen say that they could perceive no difference between them, but in speaking of general manners I may observe that it is rarely they dine in society except in taverns and boarding-houses. Then they eat with the greatest possible rapidity and in total silence. I have heard it said by American ladies that the hours of greatest enjoyment to the gentlemen were those in which a glass of gin-cocktail or egging receives its highest relish from the absence of all restraint whatever, and when there were no ladies to trouble them. Notwithstanding all this, the country is a very fine country, well worth visiting for a thousand reasons. Nine hundred and ninety-nine of these are reasons founded on admiration and respect. The thousandth is that we shall feel the more contented with our own. The more unlike a country through which we travel is to all we have left, the more we are likely to be amused. Everything in Cincinnati had this newness, and I should have thought it a delightful place to visit, but to tarry there was not to feel at home. My home, however, for a time it was to be. We heard on every side that of all the known places on the globe called Earth, Cincinnati was the most favourable for a young man to settle in, and I only awaited the arrival of Mr. T. to fix our son there, intending to continue with him till he should feel himself sufficiently established. We accordingly determined upon making ourselves as comfortable as possible. I took a larger house, which, however, I did not obtain without considerable difficulty, as notwithstanding fourteen hundred new dwellings had been erected the preceding year, the demand for houses greatly exceeded the supply. We became acquainted with several amiable people, and we beguiled the anxious interval that preceded Mr. T.'s joining us by frequent excursions in the neighbourhood, which not only afforded us amusement, but gave us an opportunity of observing the mode of life of the country people. We visited one farm which interested us particularly from its wild and lonely situation, and from the entire dependence of the inhabitants upon their own resources. It was a partial clearing in the very heart of the forest. The house was built on the side of a hill, so steep that a high ladder was necessary to enter the front door, while the back one opened against the hillside. At the foot of this sudden eminence ran a clear stream, whose bed had been deepened into a little reservoir just opposite the house. A noble field of Indian corn stretched away into the forest on one side, and a few half-cleared acres with a shed or two upon them occupied the other, giving accommodation to cows, horses, pigs, and chickens innumerable. Immediately before the house was a small potato garden, with a few peach and apple trees. 
The house was built of logs and consisted of two rooms, besides a little shanty or lean-to that was used as a kitchen. Both rooms were comfortably furnished with good beds, drawers, etc. The farmer's wife and a young woman who looked like her sister were spinning, and three little children were playing about. The woman told me that they spun and wove all the cotton and woolen garments of the family, and knit all the stockings. Her husband, though not a shoemaker by trade, made all the shoes. She manufactured all the soap and candles they used, and prepared her sugar from the sugar-trees on their farm. All she wanted with money, she said, was to buy coffee, tea, and whiskey, and she could get enough any day by sending a batch of butter and chicken to market. They used no wheat, nor sold any of their corn, which, though it appeared a very large quantity, was not more than they required to make their bread and cakes of various kinds, and to feed all their livestock during the winter. She did not look in health, and said they had all had ague in the fall. But she seemed contented and proud of her independence, though it was in somewhat a mournful accent that she said, "'Tis strange to us to see company. I expect the sun may rise and set a hundred times before I shall see another human being that does not belong to the family." I have been minute in the description of this forest farm, as I think it the best specimen I saw of the backwoods independence of which so much is said in America. These people were indeed independent, Robinson Crusoe was hardly more so, and they eat and drink abundantly, but yet it seemed to me that there was something awful and almost unnatural in their loneliness. No village bell ever summoned them to prayer, where they might meet the friendly greeting of their fellow-men. When they die, no spot sacred by ancient reverence will receive their bones. Religion will not breathe her sweet and solemn farewell upon their grave. The husband or the father will dig the pit that is to hold them beneath the nearest tree. He will himself deposit them within it, and the wind that whispers through the boughs will be their only requiem. But then they pay neither taxes nor tithes, are never expected to pull off a hat or to make a curtsy, and will live and die without hearing or uttering the dreadful words, God save the King. About two miles below Cincinnati, on the Kentucky side of the river, Mr. Bullock, the well-known proprietor of the Egyptian Hall, has bought a large estate with a noble house upon it. He and his amiable wife were devoting themselves to the embellishment of the house and grounds, and certainly there is more taste and art lavished on one of their beautiful saloons than all Western America can show elsewhere. It is impossible to help feeling that Mr. Bullock is rather out of his element in this remote spot, and the gems of art he has brought with him show as strangely there as would a bower of roses in Siberia or a Cincinnati fashionable at Almack's. The exquisite beauty of the spot, commanding one of the finest reaches of the Ohio, the extensive gardens, and the large and handsome mansion, have tempted Mr. Bullock to spend a large sum in the purchase of this place. And if any one who has passed his life in London could endure such a change, the active mind and sanguine spirit of Mr. Bullock might enable him to do it but his frank and truly English hospitality, and his enlightened and inquiring mind, seemed sadly wasted there. I have since heard with pleasure that Mr. Bullock has parted with this beautiful but secluded mansion. End of chapter 5